This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker, and today we'll be visiting with author Tim McGee to discuss his book, Worthy McGuire. Welcome, Tim. How's your day so far? Uh, good, good. Tim, how would you classify this book? Describe that for our listeners. What type of book is this? It's a mainstream fiction novel. The cover of your book gives this brief description. Retired businessman Worthy McGuire knows he cannot put it off any longer. Time's not on the side of this gruff World War II veteran, racing to fulfill a promise he made in the horrors of the D-Day invasion. As he plans a pilgrimage from Michigan to the site of both his best and worst day. This certainly is a mysterious introduction to your book. Tell us more. It is a, um, it's really a story about a World War II vet who um, takes his estranged family on a journey across the globe uh, in search of a French family that um, really saved his life during World War II. And he made a promise to return, and it's taken him all these years to fulfill this promise. And this is the stories about that journey and how he, he takes his estranged family with him and, and really has a chance, an unexpected chance, to uh, have some uh, closure and redemption with his family as he seeks out this French family that saved his life. Sounds like a fascinating backdrop. How did you come to write this book? What was your motivation? How did you get into the background and into the story to write it? Well, it actually, my father was a, um, a World War II vet. And so he was one of those, as Tom Brokaw had coined it, greatest generation. And um, when he, um, he graduated high school, uh, he, joined, he joined the Army and right, right away. And it was, it was actually 1944. He never talked about the war much. And, and as many of that generation don't. But I was just always amazed that at such a young age, these, these men and women took on such responsibility. And so um, after he passed away, several years after he passed away, I, actually my grandmother had a stack of letters that my dad wrote during the war um, while he was, um, he was actually a drill sergeant and just almost on a weekly basis, he wrote to his parents kind of explaining what was going on, where he was. He was actually in Texas and she gave me those letters just before she passed away. And I always, I always had them around and I was on a trip to France last year and went to Normandy and just thought about that and kind of the story germinated in my mind at that point. Um, always wanted to write something that would uh, honor my father and the greatest generation. So that was really kind of the, the germination of the story. That's a fabulous motivation. Did you pull any of the stories from those letters and include them in the book? Actually, I didn't, but the the story hinges around this soldier, this worthy McGuire, who it, it, during the, he's involved in D-Day evasion. He he, he lands on Omaha Beach and ends up at a, um, a tiny apple farm and spends a harrowing night with a French family, helps uh, a very pregnant woman actually deliver her baby by candlelight. And the, uh, the story then kind of moves on to the next day where he uh, helps save, save the family and they save him, and he has to move on. He's, you know, he's a soldier. He's actually been wounded, and he's got to go get treatment. But he hates leaving this family. They just got caught up in the war just because of where they live. And he, he gives this baby his watch to play with, and he promises he'll return for it. And that's kind of the, the crux of the story. And the actual watch is, I, that was actually, my dad had a watch <laughs> that he gave me that he got when he graduated from high school. So that was a, that was a key prop in the story. And that, so I actually had that watch that my father gave to me. And so I used that same watch, same style, same brand in the book. And so that was uh, kind of a key motivator as well. Are there any messages besides the restoration of your key character, Worthy McGuire, that are important to this novel? 
Well, yeah, it, 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 it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, um, I guess a metaphorical journey from, for, a, you know, a guy who he is, when the store starts, you know, Worthy McGuire is 89 and he's at the end of a very long life. And so, you know, one of the messages is that, that I'm trying to get across is not only is there, you know, there's opportunities for redemption and closure with, even with the strange family. And I, everybody has, you know, everybody has a family has a story, right? Um, hmm. But um, it's also just a story about uh, it kind of the, you know, the greatest generation, these, the older generation, you know, they're not ready to be put out to pasture. They still are a kind of a vital component and can teach us a lot. And that's really one of the, what was one of the key themes of the story. This book that you've written, who do you think it would appeal to and why? Well, I think the, the, uh, the target audience is mainly, I would say, kind of baby boomers and up. Uh, it, it has, you know, but having said that, I've, I've, I've got several people who have, read, who have read it and, you know, they're kind of like the soccer moms. It really appeals to people who are dealing with, you know, dysfunctional family issues because this is a dysfunctional family. There's, there's, there's no question that Worthy's family is, um, you know, has some some issues, and and so these these get played out in the in the story and kind of how they face down their fears. So it, anybody who has that kind of family dynamic would be it would appeal to. It also has a historical angle because in the middle of the book. There's a there's a flashback to um, you know June 1944 uh, and in Normandy. So there's there's that aspect of it as well. So it's mainstream fiction, baby boomers and 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 up is really what I was with targeting. Because your novel has a historical setting, did you do a lot of research into the history of World War II? <laughs> I did. I watched Pri- Saving Private Ryan 19 times. Now I um actually um when we went we went to. Uh, my wife is English, and so we go back to England quite a bit. And we decided to take a side trip to Normandy last summer. And so while there, uh, I did quite a bit of uh, research while there. Not only, like, we went to some museums and, and uh, the U.S. Cemetery at Omaha Beach and things like that, but also just kind of getting a feel for the land. Because the last third of the book, actually, all, it all takes place in Normandy. So um, in addition to that, I've... I've um, I did quite a bit of research in terms of not only reading, you know, firsthand accounts of the uh, of the landing at Omaha, um, but in addition, was able to actually track down the the, the Fighting Twenty Ninth was one of the uh, one of the main infantry infantry divisions that was involved with Omaha, and I was able to track down through research their actual war reports, action reports, and read a lot of those just so I could get a you know obviously this is a fiction story, but I wanted to be as is as accurate as possible in terms of, you know, how they landed, what what the soldiers faced as they were fighting their way off the beach and up the bluffs. How long did it take to write this book? And, and in the process, was there some self-discovery that might have been included? It actually took from, from start to finish to actually write the book, it, it took me about 10 months. So like, it's like giving birth to a baby. And in terms of self-discovery, I would say it was, it was, you know, Obviously, a little bit of a labor of love, but it was also, I think I learned that, you know, to sit there and say, I'm going to write a story and frame it out in your head, but then to actually sit down in front of a computer and start actually writing it, uh, it, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of just focus and perseverance. And I kind of, you know, that was a learning for me, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. How would you introduce this book to someone who doesn't know you or maybe even know the material that you are covering in the novel? How would you go about it? Well, again, I would say that it's it's a you know, it's a it's a story. It's got a lot of subplots. So it's it's a story about, you know, redemption, family uh redemption and closure and you know, I I was as I was thinking about it and this is it's it's a little bit if you were going to try and visualize what kind of a movie it would be like it's like almost like on golden pond with a uh, a dash of saving private ryan it's about you know family interactions and how you know petty jealousies and things like that can just fester and 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 explode in addition to you know this is an unexpected journey this is a you know worthy mcguire is an 89 year old guy who 
Um, he's a successful businessman who just doesn't have a relationship with his family. And at that age, people would think you just kind of, you know, you haven't really dealt with it for years. You just kind of let it go. And, you know, so I'm telling people who are thinking about the book, it's, it's, it's a kind of a re revealing story that's really never too late to, to really kind of try and take a look at relationships and patch them up. You mentioned the word movie. If this was adapted into movie, what scene in this book would you say is the outstanding scene that they would introduce the movie as a, as a movie trailer? Hmm. I would say without giving away the ending, which um, the, the ending of the book is, is, is pretty dramatic. It takes place on a, on a D-Day beach and the, the whole family is there, but that, I don't want to give away the ending. Um, I would say in the middle of the book when, you know, Worthy is a 22-year-old or 21-year-old soldier and, you know, he's, he's fighting his way off, off the beach of, of Normandy, of Omaha. And uh, just the, the courage it takes for those soldiers to not just hide behind a barricade, but to stand up and, you know, run into the enemy fire, I would say, would probably be a, a pretty telling scene. That sounds like a remarkable story. Uh, this book, what makes it different from others in the marketplace, do you think? Uh, it doesn't have a vampire. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. um, Perhaps you could incorporate that in the sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worthy of the vampire. It actually, I think what makes it unique is that you have such a, um, the main character is an unusual character, you know, person in that he's, he's this, you know, nearly 90-year-old kind of crusty, gruff old guy who um, is really kind of driving the story. And, I, and again, I think, you know, as main, you know, as kind of heroes go, he is, I think un, he is unusual in that he is in the autumn of his life. And uh, he actually kind of in the book comes around to kind of reengaging with his family after 30 years of really not doing anything with them. Fabulous. As far as completing the book, and developing a storyline, were there other challenging aspects of putting this book together? I think it was the the main. There's a lot of subplots. There's there's Worthy McGuire, who's the main character, and then there's his family, and he's he's got his, you know, Worthy comes back from the war and becomes a very successful businessman in the Detroit, Michigan area. He actually ends up owning um, car dealerships, and that's kind of what the family business is, and so. The challenge was I had to do some research around kind of what the car business is. I grew up in Detroit, so that was not that difficult. But just developing all of those relationships that Worthy had or doesn't have, but the, 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 the strings of his family, you know, his, his son who he's been fighting with for like 35 or 40 years. They don't even know why they're fighting anymore. They just do it. And then his two grandkids who are – they're, they're – estranged worthy barely knows them but they're the ones he taps to take on the trip with him he needs help when worthy decides he's going to go back to france to to try and find this family that saved his life he realizes he can't go alone and he realizes too that he has to turn to his family and he doesn't have a relationship with any of them but he turns to the grandkids their adult grandkids and he turns to them for help so developing those storylines about how the grandson david is in the family business and just miserable there and there's the granddaughter shannon is also uh she's clerking in a bookstore and and just you know under the oppressive pressure of her father and stepmother and so all developing all of those storylines and then kind of weaving them together was a and, and in a kind of coherent way where you finish the book and you go okay all that stuff made sense it, it's there wasn't any i don't think any leaps of faith in terms of the storyline well, congratulations. Is there anything we haven't covered that you feel is important for people to know about this book? Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's just a, I, th I think it's a good story. It, it's an interesting story, and it, it kind of reveals you have, each character has its complexities. I don't think that there's, there's a, there, there are characters that represent certain types of people, but nobody is completely bad or completely, completely good. They're human beings. So if you're interested in a, a good story that, you know, kind of weaves in and out of the family intrigue that everybody deals with, and, but also, you know, this story takes you across the globe. It starts up in, uh, in a little village in Franklin, Michigan, and it, it takes you to where, you know, the uh, D-Day invasion took place. And, and 
you know, along the way, they, they stop in England and, you know, go to the stormy coast of Wales to, you know, seek out letters that Worthy wrote during the war. So it's, it's, I think it's got a, just an interesting story. Sounds like a fabulous tale. Are you planning any other books in the near future? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually I do. Um, working on one right now that is very different in terms of, it's a, it's a, it's a book actually about the, uh, um, the drug industry. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, and in in a previous life I was I spent uh, 25 years working in the in the drug industry ph- pharmaceutical industry I should say. Um thank you for clearing that up. That story is is about a uh kind of a successful pharmaceutical executive who deals with again there's there's his personal life he deals with some very intense situations and then in his professional life he deals with some very uh kind of ethical faced with some very, you know, ethical questions. And it's how he deals with the, the theme of the story in his personal life is how well do you know your best friend? That story, when it comes out, we'll look forward to talking to you about it in the future. For the moment, we've been visiting with author Tim McGee to discuss his book, Worthy McGuire, a novel with a backdrop of World War II and beyond, dealing with reconciliation and family healing. Tim, thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jack. And how do we get a copy of your book? Uh, it's available actually through uh, through iUniverse, or it's available on um, Amazon as a uh, you know as a hardback or paperback, or um, as a, uh, a Kindle. And it should be available on Barnes and Noble as a, on the Nook very soon. Thank you, Tim. We look forward to talking with you in the future, and thank you again for sharing this intriguing tale and the backdrop to this wonderful story. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Parker. Today we'll be visiting with author and doctor, Dr. Anselm Enyoha, to discuss the book, How Broccoli Head Lost 30 Pounds. Doctor, how in the world did you come up with a title like that? Well, um, when I first uh, started my efforts to lose some weight, I've heard that uh, broccoli is a very uh, great food to eat, good vegetables. So I ate a lot of that, and uh, it happened. It happened that one one good night, my wife um, 
uh, smelled broccoli on my head and called me a broccoli head. <laughs> so that's how I, <laughs> so that's how I c- came up with the name broccoli head. <laughs> that's a very catchy title. Yeah, but that taught me a lot of lessons because it taught me um, about uh, the aspect of food rotation. In other words, um, uh, you don't have to eat one particular food item um, forever. You have to even in a even in a, uh, a group. Sorry, even in the um, area like uh, vegetables, you, you have to uh, find what kind of vegetable you like. You know, uh, mix it up. You don't have to stick on broccoli alone. You can mix it up with spinach and other kinds of vegetables. You don't have to, so that taught me a lot of lessons about. Uh, about uh, about broccoli and vegetables and other food items too. And doctor, what field of expertise do you have? What is your background? Well, I'm a pediatrician. Uh, I train in general pediatrics. And did you deal with nutrition, at least in the aspects that you have approached in this book, in your study of pediatrics? No, we hardly um, we hardly uh, talked about nutrition uh, as a medical student and as a residency. Uh, during residence, we never hardly discussed about nutrition. I had to do my own research when I decided to uh, lose some weight, and I had to do my own research. We never talked or dwelled so much on nutrition in medical school or during residence. So your goal was to lose just 30 pounds. Am I understanding that correctly? 30 pounds was all I needed to make my uh, BMI to come to normal. Uh, because I, when I first started, I weighed 183 pounds, which is which had my BMI in the um, which had my BMI very high outside the normal range. So to bring my B, BMI, which is basal metabolic index, to normal level, I had to lose 30 pounds. So that's what I did. You know, lose enough weight to make my BMI to be normal. And what did you discover on this journey? Well, I discovered that from weight loss to lose weight is um. um it's somebody, somebody, it's something somebody has to resolve, have a good resolution about. You have to make up your mind and resolve that this is what you want to do, and you have to commit to it. And it's, it's a life-changing, life-changing style. In other words, you have to uh, do lifestyle changes. You know, um, if you want to lose weight, then stick to it. You know, it's not uh, it's not something you do for a day or a couple of days after New Year and uh, go back to your old ways. It's something you have to be resolved and committed to do, and something that you intend to keep for the rest of your life for it to work. Many people are involved in trying to lose weight and going on diets. What made this different for you? Uh, You have written a book about it. Was it just to discuss your journey, or was it to also pass on some well-learned lessons? Well, I think it's very... uh, the reason why I decided to uh, go through the process of writing this book is because I think it's very, very important. As a physician myself, uh, I had gone to, I had gone for my annual physical to see my own doctor, who happened to be a very knowledgeable physician, and uh, he took my blood pressure, and my blood pressure was high, and he said, uh, "Dr. Nyoha, um, your blood pressure is high," and he offered me a pill, you know, to take appeal for the rest of my life as a way to fix my blood pressure and I said um, thank you so much you know but I wouldn't I would like I'd rather lose I'd rather do it the uh, natural way I'd rather, rather lose weight you know to fix my blood pressure so that's what I did because I I realized the relationship between high blood pressure and obesity or excessive uh, weight so for every pound uh, weight loss there is a one millimeter millimeter of mercury drop in blood pressure. So I decided to uh, lose weight and um, I came back six months later and my blood pressure had gone had uh, gone back to normal. And that's how I fixed my blood pressure. And I think a lot of people, I think this is very important because a lot of people uh, take blood pressure pills for the rest of their life for something they could do, for something they could rectify with a, a change in lifestyle which is what I did. What did you discover about food and a person's relationship to it when it comes to putting on weight? Well, I think um, it's very easy to see their relationship. Um, uh, food gives energy. As uh, we, People eat food just to uh, be able to get energy to do all the activities they have to do, as well as uh, run their vital organs, what we call basal metabolic rate. 
basal metabolic rate, which is BMR, is heartbeat, respiration, does breathing, and a few things that happen in the body that we don't know about, you know. Uh, these are called basal metabolic rate, and we need energy for those things to occur. And that's why we eat, that's the primary reason why people eat food, so that their organs can function. Now, any additional food you eat, you have to uh, take care of it through activities. In other words, if you, if you need 1,500 calories for vital, for vital functions, you need uh, probably another uh, 500 calories for activities or 1,000 calories for activities depending on what you do. But if you're going to sit around all day, you don't need that extra food for activities because you're not doing any activities. So any food you eat which is more than what your body needs for basal metabolic rate is stored in your body as fat and weight gain. So, so to maintain weight, to maintain, for somebody to maintain their weight, they have to match their activity level and basal metabolic rate with the amount of food they eat, with the amount of calories they consume. So the equation between now weight gain and calorie intake. Now, occasionally doctors such as yourself can get folks like me confused about medical terms and that type of thing. Does this book approach it on a scientific level, or is it also conversational? Well, this book is very easy to um, it's very very easy to um, to go through. In fact, I've seen people read this book in a in a day or half a day because I uh, you know I break it down into um, subsections, uh, categories, and. Uh, and tables, you know, it's very diagrammatic. There's a lot of diagrams there, and uh, it's easy to run through and pick the vital, vital um, component of the book. Now, could it also be considered a reference book? Yes, definitely. Um, there's a, you know, because I'm a physician, I had to, I had to put in, a, you know, a few vital things which a layman would find very interesting when now, you know, trying to discover things about food, body, and wood gain. Now, this is 122 pages. How long did it take you to write this book? Well, I wrote this book uh, in a period, I think it was between um, 8 to 12 months. You know, I usually come in early in the morning before my practice. I like to write in the in the, even, in the morning, very early in the morning. So I come in around 5 o'clock in the morning, write for about um, 4 or 5 hours before my patients start coming around 9, 10. So I, I think I did that for about uh, eight to ten months, you know, before I could uh, get something going. And in introducing this book to someone that doesn't know you or know anything about this work, how would you introduce it? Well, I would tell them this is, this is what they need to. I mean, they have to read this book because it's um, it's very easy for people to just do the uh, do the easy thing of you know taking medications. And thinking that is all it is about uh, fixing their medical problems, especially hypertension, uh, diabetes, uh, sleep apnea. And also, this book is a, a better book. So uh, if, if people do what they said in this book, they will avoid a lot of um, drastic measures to lose weight, including surgery, liposuction, with all its complications. This is a very, very, very important book for somebody who's interested in lifestyle changes to actually consider before they do anything drastic about their weight gain. And have you also taken on a lifestyle change since writing this book? Oh, definitely. My lifestyle, it is easier than people think, you know, about adopting a new lifestyle changes. Because as I've pointed out in this book, the, the body always follows the mind. Whenever somebody makes up their mind, the body will follow. So the body is not as weak as people think it is. Whenever somebody makes up their mind on what to do, all the um, they'll think is they will discover that it's very it's easier than they think to follow through. So lifestyle changes is not very hard to do. We just have to you know start one one level at a time, make you know changes one change at a time and your body will adapt to whichever lifestyle change you want to do. Uh, were there any challenging aspects of uh, putting this book together and writing it? Yes, there's a lot of challenges. I discovered that there's a bunch of things I don't know about food, a whole bunch of things I didn't know about food, especially variety varieties of food, the um, different classes of, of, of food, 
And um, even, uh, um, for example, in about nuts, you know, there's uh, thousands of varieties of nuts. Fruits, there's, you know, thousands of varieties of fruits. Vegetables, there are thousands of varieties. I didn't even know about lentils, which is a very good, um, uh, good nutrition. I didn't know about lentils until I went to the fruit store and started looking up for grains and legumes. And I discovered lentils for the first time, you know. So there's a whole world of food that people don't know about. And it's very exciting. So I was, uh, it was thrilling for me to discover things that I only read in textbook that I've never seen. These things exist, and I think people should get in tune with the, the world of, of food, the varieties of nature-made food out there. There are thousands and thousands, which is more than the, uh, the food industry can give. That's great advice. My wife, who has encountered some minor health issues, has been introducing me to some foods I didn't know existed and uh, finding that they're very, very tasty. They are great alternatives. Exactly. Exactly. Even now, even now there's no need for people to take, um, to put uh, you know, a lot of salt in your food, for example, because um, what is salt? Salt is just sodium and chloride, for example. And um, a lot of vegetables have salt. A lot of um, lot of grains, lot of uh, you know natural food uh, consist of you know have salt in abundance, sodium in abundance. So there's no need for people to consume lots of salt, which which increases their blood pressure. And the, the only thing why salt is important as a vehicle to add uh, the element of iodine, and iodine is a vital element which which the thyroid uses to produce uh, a hormone, you know, thyroid hormone. That's the only reason why salt is important. But then a person needs only half a teaspoon of salt a day. That's the recommended uh, quantity of salt somebody needs in a day, half a teaspoon. And that is important only as a supply vehicle for iodine. So, but you can get a lot of uh, iodine too from seafood. So, you can get a lot of iodine from you know, eating a lot of seafoods, which is natural. So there's always a way to get around eating bad, you know, bad food. Nobody, people don't have any excuse to eat bad processed food because there's, there are a lot of natural alternatives. Well, sounds like important advice and certainly great research. Again, the book is titled How Broccoli Head lost 30 pounds. I am speaking with Dr. Broccolihead, as the name given to him by his wife, Dr. Anselm Anyoha. Dr. Anyoha, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for, the, for giving me the opportunity to talk about my food. And how can we get a copy of that book? Well, the book is uh, on Amazon, and also... Um, if you want to go to my website, which is uh, brand new, it's uh, com. But it's also available on Amazon. And how is Dr. Anyoha spelled? Anyoha is spelled A-N-Y-O-H-A. Just as it sounds. Excellent. Yes. Thank you for sharing this important insight on dieting and some good clues on how to keep our weight under control. Thank you so much for the opportunity. For Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. 
The title of the book, Coulda, Shoulda, Woulda. A mother's lessons, learnings, and insights from her daughter's battle with cancer. And the author is Kenna P. Marriott. And Kenna joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Kenna. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us. Obviously, a very gripping kind of book. True story. Your daughter, Janine, struggled with cancer over a seven and a half year period. And of course, uh, not only your daughter's feelings recorded uh, from your point of view, but also your your feelings going through it. And then after her death uh, back in, let's see, 2008, she passed away and she was 47. So this book, well, it's a book that covers situations that others like Janine will face. And so you're trying to help others to get through that many ways, kind of a terrifying journey. So kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, before all this started, what life was like and what you were doing and a little bit about what your daughter was doing before that fateful day when she got the report on her mammogram. Well, in terms of my life, it was good. Um, I um, taught organization development, which is going into an organization and helping it to get better and develop it, if you will, hence the name. And um, that involved a lot of training and lectures, and the training depended on what the company needed. It might be communication skills. It might be personnel help. Um, it could be conflict resolution. Um, it just it was very flexible. And luckily for me, I've been doing this for 35 years, so probably most things that most companies have a need for, I was able to go ahead and teach something on it, and even down to Myers Briggs personality and you know analysis for their execs. So it, it was a good life. It was fun um, and um, hasn't been the same, obviously. Um, and Janine, before she uh, got the cancer, she was a homemaker. Uh, she had decided to stop working and to raise her kids who um, were only uh, two and uh, seven when, or I'm sorry, two and six when she got the cancer. So, you know, it was tough as she was raising him in that early age. And for the next seven and a half years, she had to bring them up. Plus, we were dealing with, what do you tell them? You know, how do you tell them? What do you say that's age appropriate between those ages? Because they were nine and 13 when she passed. So that was a real challenge. Up till then, she'd been a happy housewife and loved taking care of her kids and gardening. And she was a really neat kid. Um, I, she was my best friend. Um, I have never known anybody that I was as close to. We were mother, daughter, best friends, like sisters. And when she went through all of this, she also became my hero. And she still is my hero. So for a while, it looked like she had beaten it. Yeah. Uh, when she got the breast cancer, she had it for a couple of years and got all the chemo and had a, her breast taken off and the lymph nodes taken out and just all the th stuff you're supposed to do. She did it. And um, they got enough of a margin that they thought um, they'd gotten all the cancer. And she had almost two years of being a survivor, so to speak. And then it metastasized in her backbone. And uh, bone cancer, as you may or may not know, is incurable. So at that point, it was a matter of we knew she would die. We just didn't know when or how long. And... It depended on whether it stayed in the bones or if it got into the soft tissue, which would have hastened everything up. Uh, thank God she did not have it in the soft tissue until probably the last eight months of her life. So we were just still dealing with the bone cancer, but it, 
it wasn't as fast a pace as it was when it went into uh, the soft tissue. And, you know, that's a point. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this book is uh, she and I had talked about doing one, you know, so she could help other girls that were going through cancer. She thought it would be a neat thing to do. And, of course, she wasn't around to do it. Um, so, you know, I struggled with this, and it was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is to write this book because every time I had to do a rewrite or add something or read a proof, I had to relive her death and her sickness all over again. And that went on for about six different drafts, and, you know, it's like reliving, reliving, reliving. And the thing I did figure out, though, during that time is the book really is for people that have had cancer. However, all the things that Janine went through would still happen to anybody else who had any type of serious life-saving or life-threatening illness. They're going to go through, other than maybe the chemo, they're going to go through the same kinds of uh, situations as Janine did. So although her book is about cancer, I find there are people who are reading it who have relatives who don't have cancer, but they have some other serious life-threatening disease. And they tell me, gee, what you say in here fits my husband or fits my cousin or fits my daughter. So it really has a, a wider audience than I really thought it was going to. Interesting point. I think it's obvious that cancer affects more than just the patient, just your daughter. It is a family illness, but it's important to point that out. It, it is a family illness. Yeah, it is. Um, it impacts everybody. And, you know, I, I talk about it in the book, and, I, you know, I explain to people that it is a family disease. It impacts not only the family, but everybody, every one of their friends, because everybody is touched by it. And to the degree that of closeness they have to the person, they're touched by it in different ways. But a lot of people think it's just happening to the patient. And it, it doesn't. It happened. I felt it hap was happening to me. And because I took it very hard all the time she was going through it, and then after, it also impacted my, my fiancé at the time because what I felt he had to go through comforting me while I was comforting her. So, uh, you know, you, you need help all the way through uh, from friends, family, both both the person who's the patient and their family members. And uh, frankly, uh, some of the coulda, shoulda, wouldas that uh, I discuss in the book is that we didn't get the counseling for the kids. We never, matter of fact, uh, when Janine passed, uh, they had still not been told their mother uh, was going to die. My mm. daughter and my son-in-law chose not to have that conversation. I talked with them about a month before she died, and I had a serious conversation about, you know, your mom is really ill. I never said, you know, where it would end up. But until that point in time, they kept thinking she was going to get better. Mm. And, I, you know, that's the kind of a situation I have in the book because I want people to understand how important these things are and gosh what do you say to young kids when you know their mom's mm -hmm. gonna die and they're sitting there thinking mom's gonna come home and get better that's it's be a terrible situation to be in because there's really no way to prepare for death absolutely not absolutely not um you know uh, i was going to a psychologist at the time uh, as a matter of fact she's the psychologist who uh, did the forward for my book for me and um, she kept saying, you know, Janine's probably only got six months. She only has four months. She only has three months. You better get ready. You better get ready. And I'd sit in her office and I'd nod my head and say, okay, I will. Okay. And there is absolutely no way anybody can get ready for it. Um, you know, and I'm, those are the kinds of things I talk about in the book. 
do what they tell you to do to be prepared, but you'll never be ready. If that makes any sense. It does. It does. And, you know, uh, it's um, all the things that we go through. Um, I want people to realize also, as they're reading the book, what they can do to make the person's life better, even if they're sick. Um, Because even though they're ill, there are no do-overs for them, and there definitely aren't for the person who's uh, in the position that's going to have the loss. You can't do them over, so you need to do all the things that they would want to do. I think there's a movie out with Jack Nichols, and it was called The Bucket List. I made my own for her because she wouldn't make one because she really thought she was going to get better, and she kept trying all these trials and everything. So I made a bucket list of my own. I will take my daughter to the spa, and we will have this, and we will go here, and we're going to go do makeup and, you know, go to one of those counters that where they put your makeup on for free. And we're just going to have a lot of girl days, go out to lunch a lot. And I managed to do that, although she didn't know why I was pushing so hard to go to the spa, if you will. A quarter of your book is really dealing with you, with you, uh, after her death, and as a parent, as a mother, uh, how to deal with grieving and mourning. Now, tell us the difference and uh, how you were able to uh, overcome the the darkest moments. Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. Um, I realized after this was all over And I try to break it down in the book for people because I always thought grieving and mourning started at the end when you lost somebody. And that's not really true. I started to grieve for Janine when I found out she had breast cancer. I grieved then for what might happen, what could have happened. And then later when I found out she had bone cancer, I grieved all the time up until um, she lost her life. Now, when you, you know, when you go through grieving, you're going through a, a whole bunch of stages, you know, um, and there, you know, you go into denial and anger and depression and bargaining and um, reconciliation. If you notice, I say reconciliation, not acceptance, because you never accept. So you need to know how to recognize those grief stages and then the difference in that is when you get into a situation where you finally go into mourning the mourning is really what you do once you hear their past and while they're um, in the funeral home and directly after in the next few months it's a deeper kind of grief but it goes away but the grief never does It's something you're going to live with for the rest of your life, sort of like having a piece of your heart missing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in the book, I try to explain the differences and how people can cope with being alive without the person they love. Um, And it's hard. Um, You know, there are times I think I'm doing real well coping, and it's been five years now. And I'll pull out something that reminds me of her, and I will break down in tears immediately. You get so blindsided all the time. While she was sick, we both got blindsided by things. And then since she's been gone, um, I got blindsided by simply um, using some fabric softener sheets. And I know that sounds stupid, but she is the one who turned me on to fabric softener sheets. So I was doing the wash like I've done forever, and all of a sudden, this one day, I pulled the fabric softener sheet out to use it and just lost it. And I was depressed and in bed, frankly, for the next two days, just grieving, and it had been four years. So you you just don't know when you're going to get blindsided. And I just, you know, and those are the kinds of things in coulda, shoulda, woulda, that I want people to be prepared for uh, is what's going to happen to them after they lose their loved one and how they can survive it. 
And hopefully they will be able to do some of the things that helped me survive it. Uh, and I, I haven't survived it yet, but you know what I mean. Um, I'd like them to be able to do things sooner than I did. It took me three years to come up with the bright idea to build a flower garden in the backyard called Janine's Garden. And I planted flowers, and most days I can go out there and look at them and think, gosh, she'd really like that. But um, it took me three years to get to that point. And a friend of mine just lost her husband, and I told her, I said, you know, if you can force yourself, go plant a garden. She said, what? What do you mean, plant a garden? I, I can't be planting flowers, you know. My husband just died last year. And, and I explained to her why. And uh, she did do it, and it did help her. So I'm hoping that the things that I went through and the steps, uh, other people will get to them and through them sooner than I did. We've been listening to Kenna P. Marriott. She is the author of her book, Coulda, Shoulda, Woulda, A Mother's Lessons, Learnings, and Insights from Her Daughter's Battle with Cancer. Kenna, tell us how to get your book. And tell us okay. about your blog. Tell us about your oh. blog. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, let's uh, kind of cover where they can get the book. It's uh, Coulda, Shoulda, Woulda, and that's going to be hard to forget as a title because we all say, I coulda, I shoulda, I woulda, just about all the time. I don't know how many times I've said it this month. So Coulda, Shoulda, Woulda, and it's available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iUniverse, any online book sales person that sells, company that sells books online. Um, so they should go there. And then it's also noted uh, where they can get it, and I have a link on my blog. I started a blog after Janine died called livewithcancer.info, and that's .info, not net or com, or it's livewithcancer.info. And I started it because people started to ask me questions. You know, how can I this? Would you do it? What do you know about that? You know, and I found that the blog was helpful for me. It was kind of cathartic. It gave me something to think about. But my blog also has a second part to it where they can go into it and list anything that's wrong, any illness they have, and put it up there with some questions for anybody else who has the same one and possibly they can get together and talk back and forth. So it's up there to help people, to educate them, to just make them aware. And again, it's one of those, it's more than livewithcancer.info, it's just live your life kind of uh, entries. Well, thank you so much, Kenna, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. That's all right. Thank you for having me iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.